In summer, these transitions happen very, very quickly there. So, well, hey, it is great to spend some time with you uh, this morning. We're uh, continuing our study through the New Testament book of Romans, and uh, specifically, uh, we're going to look at Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7 this morning, which, which speaks of the, the nature and the source of government and how we as Christians are uh, expected by God to engage with that government. So, But before I start, I, I want to share a disclaimer with you. Uh, this message uh, has been adapted from a, a message that I preached a, a couple years ago, back in February of 2020. It was part of a, a message series that we had done called The Gospel and Government, which was developed to, to speak into how the, the gospel, or actually developed to show how the gospel speaks into various hot topics that are uh, in the political nature of our country. We uh, talked about race, uh, we talked about immigration, the sanctity of human life, uh, we had discussions about uh, the economy, about poverty, uh, we talked about the environment, and we even at that time had talked about the issues of transgenderism. And uh, that series I had a very specific purpose. Pastor Ben and I and Mike Bonga, we designed that, that series to help mitigate some of the issues that we had a number of years ago uh, at the end of a presidential election. Uh, back in 2016, uh, the presidential election that occurred really took uh, our leadership uh, team off guard, not necessarily because of the candidate who won, but uh, because of the response of our church family. Uh, at that time, uh, in 2016, after the election, uh, there were members of our church family who were deeply grieving that President Trump, or Donald Trump had been elected president of the United States, while at the same time, there were other people who were greatly rejoicing that he had become president of the United States. And all the while, both of these groups in our church family couldn't figure out how to uh, love one another. It was not a, a pleasant time in our church family. Uh, Kathy and I, a number of the elders, we spent probably about three, four weeks trying to talk people uh, off the ledge and kind of calm them down and, and get them to be able to re-engage in the life of our church family. So when 2020 rolled around, uh, uh, Mike Bongo, Pastor Ben and I, we got together and we're like, we got to proactively uh, deal with this. We got to deal with this way before the election actually happens because who knows what the election's going to look like uh, this particular year. And so it was our desire to be able to equip our church family with a biblical perspective on all of those issues that we just talked about. And we thought that that would make things, you know, that would work smoothly and it would go good and everything. But little did we know that the events of the last two years would make the events of November 2020, or, uh, 2016 look like a walk in the park. Uh, between the pandemic, uh, the killing of George Floyd, and the subsequent uh, protests and... Uh, riots that came with that, and then the results of the 2020 political election, uh, or presidential election, and then you had the January 6th Capitol riots, you got the immigration crisis that's going on, you've got the whole Russian invasion of Ukraine, the economic downturn that's happened with all of this crazy soaring inflation, and then this hyper-partisan reaction to all of this stuff 
Uh, these last two years, they have been crazy hard, and they have unfortunately brought out the worst in people. And we have all seen it. Some of us have unfortunately participated in it. There has been a lack of respect for and distrust in our government institutions. There has been a mean-spiritedness towards others who don't agree with us. There has been a, a hypocritical uh, intolerance on the part of people who pride themselves in, in being tolerant. There has been a lack of grace by those who say that they love grace, yet they fail it to give it to others. And there has been this horrific unwillingness to forgive and an equal unwillingness to ask for forgiveness. And we all know that all of those things are tearing at the very fabric of our culture and our nation. And something has to change, especially for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. And perhaps the, the best place to begin that change is to embrace a biblical understanding of the nature and role of government and how God expects us as Christians to engage that particular government. So this morning, as we work our way through Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, we're going to see that God speaks to this very topic. God tells us where government came from. God tells us the nature of government. God tells us what government is supposed to do. And God tells us how you and I are supposed to react and engage with that government. So if you have a Bible with you, Romans chapter 13, first seven verses, you can pull it up on your app, if you're at home, you can look at it on the big screen. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles around the room on the tables. And if you would stand, please, in honor of God's word, allow me to read to you the first verses of chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of God. You may be seated. 
Now, before we begin to work our way through this particular text, uh, we need to go back to the very beginning of the Bible to ultimately see where the very beginning of government comes from. And it all starts in Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. This is what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And the first thing that flows from this passage is that humanity, men and women, you and I, have been created in the image of God. We are the pinnacle of God's creative effort. We are unique. We are distinct from the balance of creation. And because we are like God, we are able to create languages and craft sculptures and build skyscrapers, transplant organs, explore distant worlds, and given this uniqueness, God has given us a, a job, a responsibility. He has made us stewards, caretakers of his creation. He didn't delegate that responsibility to dogs or to dolphins or to dodo birds. He, he delegated that responsibility to human beings. You see, we were created for responsibility. And as much as we want to shirk our responsibility, we have been created by God to be responsible human beings. Responsible human beings that are created in the image of God. And our job is to actively care for God's creation. And God also, in the process, he gave us the ability to choose. We get to, to make choices. We can choose to love obey and worship God, or we can choose to love, obey, and worship other things many times, loving and obeying and worshiping ourselves. And sadly, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they chose not to love and obey and worship God. They chose to love, obey, and worship themselves. They weren't content with being created in God's image, they wanted to be God. They wanted to be their own God. They wanted to be their, make their own decisions. And in their prideful pursuit, they unleashed sin and death into this world. Death which touched them in an extraordinarily personal way when their oldest son, Cain, murders his younger brother, Abel. And from that point, folks, the wheels come off. And by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, we read this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth 
and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Evil now was running so rampant in the earth that God decides to do something radical. He decides that, that he's going to do a do-over, that he's actually going to reboot things. He's going to reset things. He's going to restart things. So what he does is he wipes out everything, except for a small remnant. A small remnant of people and a small remnant of animals that he puts under the leadership of a man by the name of Noah. Genesis chapter 9 picks up after the devastation of that great flood. And this is what it says. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. And every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood... I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now notice what God does here. God gives Noah the very exact exact mandate that he has given to Adam and Eve. They are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They are to take dominion over and master the whole of creation. But God does something else here. He says that the crime of murder would be paid by the life of the murderer. And here God lays the foundation of government by establishing the first civil law for the greatest of crimes, the taking of innocent life, a law which is to be enforced by taking the life of the one who took life. And that, brothers and sisters, that is the primary role of government. Government is to restrain and punish evil. That is the primary reason why God created government. Government is to restrain and punish evil. Now, this primary role is followed by a secondary role, which we find in Psalm 82. The psalmist says this, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless, Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And what we see here is that government is not only tasked with the responsibility of, of restraining and punishing evil, but it is also assigned the responsibility of protecting the weak 
the destitute, the needy. How are they to do that? By rendering just verdicts and resisting partiality to the wicked. You see, God has given us government because he understands the nature of humanity. God understands that, that people are inclined towards evil. God understands that the powerful regularly exploit the weak. And so God created government to, to punish evil and to protect the weak. Humanity didn't invent government. It's not the product of some great philosophical thinker. Nor was it the product of trial and error. Government finds its source in God. And it finds its source in God alone. And all of this is expanded in the verses that we just read in Romans chapter 13. Now, there are many things that this passage teaches us. We're going to move through them relatively quickly this morning. The first is this. Those who possess power in government have been appointed by God. Verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists the God, what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur punishment. See, the people that, that are in positions of power in government, they are there because God has sovereignly placed them in those positions. And when it comes to selecting those who serve our government, it is always God that casts the final and the deciding vote. You don't like President Biden or former President Trump? You're angry because Nancy Pelosi has the speaker's gavel. You can't stand Senator Ted Cruz or perhaps Senator Chuck Schumer. You're struggling with the, the judicial uh, decisions of Clarence Thomas or Sonia Sotomayor. Does ultra-liberal AOC or ultra-conservative MTG cause your brain to explode? Don't blame the Republicans. Don't blame the Democrats. Don't blame Vladimir Putin. Blame God. So if we have a problem with our township dog catcher or our county district attorney, or a state rep, or a federal judge, or a member of Congress, or for that matter, the President of the United States. We need to take it up with God. Now, this is a very difficult concept to embrace, especially when it comes to evil leaders. For example, am I saying that God has, has put into power, had put into power, Adolf Hitler or Vladimir Putin? Absolutely I am. You see, God is either sovereign over all things 
or he's sovereign over nothing at all. And you don't believe me or you don't like that? All you got to do is ask Jesus. Listen to Jesus' interaction with Pilate, the one who actually orders Jesus' execution. This is what occurs. Pilate entered his headquarters and again said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said to him, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Here, Jesus is affirming that God put Pilate into the position of authority. The one who is going to order Jesus' death has been placed into authority by Jesus' own father. And here's the point. God appoints godly leaders to be vehicles of his blessing. And God appoints evil leaders to be vehicles of his judgment. Now, this should radically change the way that we view those who are in power. God has them there for a reason. It may not make sense to us. We might not like it. Their actions may bring incredible pain into our lives and the lives of our family. They might use their authority to do horrific things. But God is God. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are, are higher than us, our thoughts. And in the words of the prophet Daniel, God removes kings and he establishes kings. And we would do very well to remember that. Now there's a second thing that these verses teach us. God punishes bad conduct, or government punishes bad conduct, and approves good conduct. Next couple of verses, starting in three. For rulers are not a terror to do good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Here Paul's teaching aligns directly with that which we see in Genesis chapter 9. Civil rulers are there to restrain evil by fear of shame and the threat of punishment. So when someone steals our parking space at the mall, as if it's actually our parking space, what keeps us from going over after they leave and keying their car or slicing their tire? We know that there's these little cameras out there that are watching the mall, and we know that we would receive punishment from the governing authorities if we do something like that. If we need extra cash, what restrains us from going and taking extra cash? 
I mean, what restrains us from going to, to Turkey Hill or to Sheets or, or taking a crowbar to an ATM and taking all the cash that we want? We, we don't do that. Why? Because we fear being punished by our government. And it's the same reason why, for the most part, that we can go through our lives feeling relatively safe because we know that others have to fear government from being punished, and that restrains them from inflicting evil upon us. But government isn't just to punish bad conduct. Government exists also to reward good conduct. Now, what does that look like? Well, many families in our church have benefited from tax breaks for adopting kids, or fostering kids. Why does the government do that? Because they see that as a good thing, and they want to reward that. They want to encourage that. Why doesn't a church pay, pay property taxes? Or, or why do we not have to pay uh, taxes on the, the giving that you provide to us? Because the government sees that, that the church does positive things for the community. And if you just think of just Little Living Water Community Church, every year we, we provide about $90,000 of compassion money to people, most of whom are not part of our church family. We help to pay rent, help with car payments, help with tax bills. We've helped people with legal issues. We get food to people. That's what you guys do. All right. The government sees that. The government recognizes that if living water didn't, church didn't exist, that, that's got to get taken care of by somebody. And, and so that is how they reward the good conduct that we do. We have this incredible playground out here. Why is that? Because the township commissioners and the county commissioners saw what we did to this property over the course of the last 20 years. We took a place that, that was a disaster zone. A, a, a place that, that prostitutes would come and find their johns. A place where drugs were sold. This place was an overgrown jungle. And over the last 20 years, all of you have turned this place basically into a park for our community. That people can come and walk their dogs, play with their kids, teach their kids to drive in our parking lot, or ride their bikes. The government recognizes that and said they wanted to reward good conduct, and they help us build these playgrounds. You see, government not only punishes bad conduct, they're there to reward good conduct. Let's keep going. Verse 4 tells us that government, or those in government are God's servants. Twice in verse 4 it says that, that he is God's servant. And remember, whenever you see repetition in the Bible, in the old languages, repetition was, was bold print. It was uh, exclamation points. It was like, this is an important thing. It's like God is shouting. What is he shouting? That those who are in government are God's servants. And in verse 6, Paul actually takes it up another step by declaring that they are ministers of God. And whether our elected officials realize it or not, they are working on behalf of God. When they punish evil and when they reward good, they are doing God's work. And as such, 
We need to view those who are in positions of power in our government as uh, gifts from God. Now, at times, I get it, it's hard to grasp. Yet even the worst government is better than no government at all. Look at what is happening in Somalia. Somalia does not have a functioning government. Whoever has power, whoever is strong, whoever has the weapons, they control everything. The same is true for much of Afghanistan right now. No functioning government. So even a corrupt government is better than no government of all. Now, that doesn't mean that those who serve in government will always do what God wants. Ultimately, some governments, ours at times, instead of punishing evil, promotes it. Instead of promoting good, they punish it. And there are many times in God's word that we see people in government doing evil things. John the Baptist called out King Herod for all the evil things that he had done. Daniel told King Nebuchadnezzar, break off your sins by practicing righteousness. Yet even though that's the case, Paul tells us that government is a gift from God. Next point. Ultimately, God uses government to carry out his wrath against those who do wrong. Look again at verses 4 and 5. For he, that's government, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Here we find the reason why governments have police departments and militaries. Their job is to execute God's wrath on wrongdoers. They are to avenge evil. Now, this is absolutely remarkable because of what Pastor Ben taught us two weeks ago when we worked through the end of Romans chapter 12. You remember, we read these words. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay, says the Lord. As Christians, we are called not to revenge ourselves or to avenge ourselves. Instead, what? Is is that evil that happens to us, is it to remain unpunished? Are we just supposed to just say, hey, I'm not supposed to avenge this, so the evildoer gets to do whatever they want? No, God comes along. God provided a provision for this. He created civil government to punish the evil that has been inflicted upon us. If someone murders your kid, rapes your daughter, robs your house, steals your car, embezzles your funds from business, we don't get to avenge that person. But God doesn't sit back and let that wrongdoing be overlooked. God has created a mechanism, civil government, who actually is to execute those punishments. Now, before we wrap up, we need to answer the question, how in the world are Christians to interact with this government? 
What does God expect of us? We understand what government is to do. It is to punish evil, reward good. That's its responsibility. If it actually stayed in those lanes, we'd all be very good. Government's not very good at doing that. But that's the basic reasons why governments exist. Now, how as Christians are we to interact with that? Look again at verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. As citizens, God commands us, orders us, instructs us to be subject to the government and to obey its rules. We see this very same teaching in 1 Peter. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Now, you got to remember when this is written. This is the first century. The, the, the Jews are living under the, the brutal thumb of, of the Romans. The Romans are merciless. I mean, the Roman emperor Nero... He's a madman. He's persecuting Christians. He's feeding them to lions. He's lighting them, dipping them in oil, lighting them to, on fire to light up his gardens at night. He, he blames the Christians for a fire in Rome that he actually caught, caused. They are living under horrific conditions. And not only are they being punished by the Romans, they're being punished by the Jewish counterparts. This is a, they are in a horrible state of affairs. Both Peter and, and Paul knew what it was like to be unjustly thrown in jail by the Romans. Paul has been beaten. He's been stoned. And yet, they are both, given this horrific government that they are living under, they are calling us to subject ourselves submit ourselves to the authorities. And in the process, what God is calling us to do is to be extraordinary models of civil obedience. That's what he's calling us to do. We're to follow the laws. We're to pay our taxes. 1 Timothy 2 says that we're even to pray for our government. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet, godly and dignified life in every way. Why do we obey? Because what we are called to do is, is live these peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified lives. However, from what I have witnessed, especially during these last two years, we struggle greatly with this. If we are brutally honest, we have not been very dignified or godly in the manner in which we have dealt with the challenges of this pandemic or the rapid changes in our culture. Many of us have sinned in the words that we say, the attitudes that we hold, the actions that we have done, 
the thoughts that we have posted, and our sinful behaviors have damaged our Christian witness. Yeah, we might win a battle, but in the process, we lose a war. But praying for them and submitting to them isn't just good for them. It's also good for us. Listen to the words of Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent from exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So what's going on here? God has, has taken the Jews because of their disobedience, and he has allowed the Babylonian king to take them and to punish them by removing them from Jerusalem and moving them to Babylon. He has, he has uprooted all of these people. And this is what he tells them to do. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply here. Do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Jeremiah's contemporaries, they are living in exile. They have lost everything. They have had to leave their home with the clothes on their back. And they didn't go to a, a resort in the Caribbean. They got exiled to Babylon, to this city of incredible wickedness and sensuality, a horrible place to be. Yet Jeremiah is calling them to do what? To, to settle down in this city and to pray for this city and to do good in this city. Why? Because it's not only in the interest of the city, it's in their own best interest. And when we pray for our leaders, and when we pray for our city and community, and when we seek its welfare, it ultimately benefits us. You want to see change happen in your community? Do we want to see that? Then we need to do good in our community. And it's not only collectively as a church family, it is as an individual person. Every one of us, every single day, we have an opportunity to be kind to people, to show them who Christians really are. Let me give you an example. And, and I hate at times when I give you examples from my own life because I feel like it's like trying to build myself up. I am not trying to build myself up. I am just simply trying to give you an example. I want to give you a positive example from me, and I'm going to start, though, with a negative example from me. Last... Uh, Sunday, after church, Kathy had something to do, and so I had a, a free afternoon, and uh, Patrick and I had been talking uh, about a, a tree that had fallen on the church property that, that needed to be cut up. I like working outside. I hadn't used my chainsaw in a while. So after church, I went home. Nobody was at the house. I uh, got changed, grabbed my chainsaw, came to church, grabbed the church pickup truck, and drove behind these houses that are down here on Rutherford, because that's where our property, we own all that property. And uh, so I'm out there, it's Memorial Day weekend, it's Sunday, and uh, I park the truck, fire up the chainsaw, I start cutting this tree up. 
in, in a few minutes, I kind of noticed out of my peripheral vision that one of our neighbors ha- has, has come onto our church property. And so I stopped the chainsaw, and this is what the neighbor says to me. Can't you do that some other day? I'm like, wow, that was a nice hello. Now, I'm in my flesh. I'm just being honest, okay? I just simply say, no, this is the only time that I can, and I go back to cutting the tree. Bad way to respond. Do not follow Pastor Mike in that. I could have done things a whole lot differently. But she was having a little picnic, had her grandkids over, didn't want the noise of the chainsaw. I get that. I've been there. Okay? I was bad. That was wrong. Confession, good for the soul. I'm confessing. So I've got the pickup truck completely loaded up with, with all this wood. I mean, I, I got, you know, it's a, maybe a half-ton truck. I got like a ton of wood on there. You know, so I'm breaking those laws too, by the way. And uh, so the, the, on... Uh, I guess, what was it, probably Tuesday morning, Pat. Yeah, Tuesday morning. I'd sent Pat a picture of the truck loaded with wood, hoping that he would rec- say, oh, I'll go empty the truck for you. That was my idea, all right? And I knew he would actually do that. But on, on Tuesday morning, I woke up, and I'm like, hey, I need to, you know, I can't make Pat unload all this wood. So uh, Tuesday happened to be our Memorial Day for most of the church staff. And so I got in here early because I didn't want Pat actually to do it. So I go to the township, I drop off all the wood, and I come back. I notice that the truck needs some coolant, and it also needs some gas. So I go to the, the uh, auto zone. I know this is a long story. I tell long stories. Just bear with me. Uh, I go to the auto zone that's over here on Paxton Street, get some coolant. Then I drive to the Turkey Hill. I put gas in the pickup truck. The gas in the pickup truck, 100 bucks. I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's not good. But it doesn't print a receipt for me. And I've put it on the church credit card because it's the church's truck. And I know that it's not good for Gary and Pat if they don't have receipts. So I decide I'm going to go in and get the receipt. So I, I go into the Turkey Hill to get the receipt right down here at the corner of 29th and Paxton Street. And there's a young lady working the grill. And uh, there's a guy waiting at the counter. I'm standing behind the guy. And uh, there's nobody else working at the store. And, and the lady, she's trying to you know, grill up stuff, and she's paying attention to the grill. And I'm thinking to myself, is she going to acknowledge that we exist? What's going to happen here? And, and finally, uh, she comes over, and she's waiting on the guy. And as she's waiting on the guy, her name was Tamira. That was on her badge. I said, Tamira, I said, are you here by yourself? And she looks at me, and she's got this little tear running down her eye. And she said, I wasn't working by myself, but the guy who was working the shift with me, he got upset about something that, that the manager had done. I don't know whether the manager called in or whatever, because there was no manager around. And he said, I quit, and he left. So this dude, not caring about her, leaving her all by her, doesn't, doesn't care about her workload, definitely doesn't care about her safety. I mean, she's there by herself. He just gets up and goes. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking, you know what? I have an opportunity to actually behave like Jesus here when I didn't behave like Jesus on Sunday afternoon. And so I wait for the guy in front of me to leave. It's just me and Tamira there. And I said, Tamira, I am, I am so sorry that someone would do that to you. And I said, I know I can't help work here right now. 
but can I at least pray for you? And she's like, yeah, I would really like that. And so I got tears running down my eyes. She's got tears running down her eyes. Here's this 57-year-old, pasty-skinned, balding white guy praying with his beautiful, probably 22-year-old African-American girl in a turkey hill. And do you see, yeah, don't, no, no need to clap, but do you see, it, it was just being kind. It tears away all the stereotypes. It, it tears away all the anger. It's, it's just being nice. We can do that. We are able to do that. And, and if 250 people sitting in a room would just do that on occasion, just be nice, kind, loving, think about another person. Do you, do you see the, the changes that can be made? We all want to, you know, we want laws changed and all this kind of stuff. Folks, that may happen, that may not happen, but, but you have control. You can control your life. You can treat people well. People can be blessed. Because the fact of the matter is most people in this world are not treated well. They are treated poorly. They are treated poorly because of the color of the skin, the amount of money that they have. Black people get treated poorly. Asian people get treated poorly. White people get treated poorly. And we can be kind. Let me close with this. Stu, I'm going to just jump ahead a little bit here. Let me close with uh, the great command. In Matthew chapter 2, this is what we're told. If you want to sum the entire Bible up into how we are supposed to live, this is what we're supposed to do. This, brothers and sisters, is not rocket science. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And they said to him, or he said to him, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This whole book is summed up in that. Love God. Loving God means what? God tells us that if you love me, you will what? You will obey me. Love him. Obey him. Even when it hurts. Even when it doesn't work out for you. Obey him. Folks, I get it. It's hard. I struggle with that. There are things in my life I wish God would totally crucify. But it doesn't mean that I get to give up. And when we love God, we come along and it says what? Love others. Treat them the way that you would want to be treated. Regardless of who they are, regardless of what they've done. There are people in my life that drive me absolutely crazy. And I need to learn. And it's not you, Mom and Dad. <laughs> That's what they're thinking right now. I want to cut off any conversations this afternoon. Love people. It's really not that hard. And I know, I know for some of you, you have not been loved. I know for some of you, you have been hurt greatly. And I'm not trying to be mean, but that gives you no excuse to be mean in return. 
It gives you no excuse. Why do to someone else what they have done to you? Love people. It's not that hard. And when it does get hard, pray. God, help me to be kind right now. I don't want to be kind. Help me. And that spirit that he deposited in you, when you confess with your mouth that Jesus was Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that spirit will help you. Because we're told what? That the spirit that raised God, Jesus from the dead, dwells inside of us. That's the power. All right, let me pray. Lord God, thanks for these folks. Lord, I love them so much. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help me and help them, Lord, to love you and love others. Lord, I pray that that we would learn how to be a blessing to our government. Lord God, it's so easy to complain. But Lord, we are truly blessed. Lord, we live in an amazing country. Lord, yeah, we have our problems, but Lord God, while we might not be able to solve these big problems, big collective things, Heavenly Father, while we may not be able to completely influence law and stuff like that, Lord, we can do things on our own, one person at a time, showing them ultimately, Heavenly Father, that, Lord, this government here is going to pass away. Lord, that this earth is going to pass away. That, Lord, your kingdom is going to come one day. And it's going to be a kingdom of perfect justice and righteousness. A kingdom of perfect peace. And, Lord, that's the kingdom that we are citizens of. In reality, Lord God, we know that we are alien and strangers here. That, Lord, we are just passing through. Some of us get to live Five years, 10 years, 15 years, 50 years, 70 years, 80 years. We don't know. We don't know what tomorrow has to hold. But Lord, we are citizens of your heavenly kingdom. Lord, help us to act like that. And Lord, now thank you for this offering that we're about to receive. I thank you for those who uh, give online, for those who give through the mail, for those who are uh, giving in in person right now. Uh, Lord God, would you uh, minister to our church family through these gifts? Help us to be good stewards of that. Help us to be generous as a church. And it's through your son's name we pray. Amen.